Monday edition of PFTPM, Miles Simmons, Mike Florio here with you today. And we come on the air with some stunning and sad news from the world of the NFL. Vincent Jackson, a very accomplished receiver who played for the Chargers and the Buccaneers, found dead in a Tampa area hotel today, 38 years old. And we decided we needed to get right into it because it's something that just popped up fairly recently. It was a stunner. It was a shock. And Miles, um, there isn't much more to say out of the gates than, you know, it's just another strange curveball that we have to process as fans of the NFL. Like it, I feel like there's just been such a terrible string of deaths that have affected us in the NFL community lately, whether you know, it's media and you have guys like Therese Praler who were just burgeoning on the, the cusp of their, really, of their careers. And now you have somebody like Vincent Jackson, who I remember the entire career of, Really, and you know that's not something that I expect when somebody who is 38 years old and who played so well for so many years in the NFL to suddenly pass away. It, it's it's really really sad, and it just it, it's hard. You know, I think as as fans of this league and as people who cover this league, it, it's hard to continue to see just the string of deaths, and it, it it's hard. I think as a country right now, just what we're all going through, just with so much death all around us, it's. It's hard to kind of be positive about it, but man, you know, you just, you really, really feel for his family and his friends and all of those who loved him. No indication of any trauma, according to the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, uh, confirmed that that it is indeed Jackson who passed. I had second round pick in 2005 and just, just a great, great player, three-time pro bowler, um, had a contract dispute near the end of his time with the Chargers. I remember he was a group of guys who were caught in a strange contractual vice near the end of the 2006 CBA. They thought they were going to be eligible for unrestricted free agency in the franchise tag. They ended up being restricted free agents. They were they were named plaintiffs in the litigation that was pursued by several of the players when the lockout started March 11, 2011. And, uh, Jackson would go on to join the Buccaneers, become a team captain right away. Very influential player, very effective player. We extend our condolences to all of his teammates, his friends, his family. And this is all just very, very raw, very real, and happening literally moments before we came on the air, the news of Vincent Jackson's passing. And and, and it is just a, a weird time, whether it is to be an NFL fan or just to be a citizen of the world, not not just America, but the world. You're right. Death is all around, and it's just confusing. It's confounding, and we try to process it all in real time, make sense of it, and just keep moving while we hold our breath for what's next. I'm, you get to a point where you're just wondering what's next, right, Miles? You, it's like you, we're we're so conditioned now to these these things that are shocking happening. You just like you're expecting something else to happen. Yeah, and that. <laughs> It's so concerning because at what point do you start to become desensitized to these types of things where just death as it happens is all around you and bad things seem to keep happening all around you. And you don't want to become desensitized to that kind of thing, I think, at least because that's what makes us human. The feeling, the emotion that we all get, especially when you hear something like an NFL player that we all knew is a really good player in this league has passed away at the age of 38. I don't think that we should ever forget how that feels and how emotional that is, Mike, because once we do, who knows where we're going to be as a society? I don't know. 
And you, you make a great point, Miles, because as humans, to deal with these things, you almost need to have a hardened shell. You almost need to become desensitized to it. And the ultimate desensitization comes from dealing with the pandemic. You hear the numbers every day of people who die. And I remember when 3,000 was shocking, and now it's, oh, it's only 3,000. I guess that's good news. It could be 4,000 a day. And and I, I just think as we as we migrate through this this strange period in our existence and wait for the other side of it to emerge, the challenge is to retain our full humanity without without losing our minds in the process, because the ultimate coping mechanism is to just get used to it. You just get used to it and you just keep going. So we I think there's a sweet spot there where you, you do find a way to cope and move on. But at the same time. You pause and you mourn the tragedy of everyone who passes. There's no indication it was anything COVID-related with Vincent Jackson. It's just part of this broader hellscape that we're in, where you're right. On one hand, it's shocking. On the other hand, it's like, okay, it's 2020 and now 2021, and when is this ever going to end? And will we be so used to it when it does end, we're not even going to notice that it's over? I hope that doesn't happen. I really do. Because like I said, it just, it's what makes us human. And I don't, I I don't really know what the right thing to do is. And I think everybody has to go through different processes when it comes to grief, different stages of grief. And that's something that, you know, we talked about even before the pandemic started. But I think now, especially where, as we've been saying, like death is all around us. And how do you really go from one day to the next? And you try not to become desensitized to it, but how do you really go about your day when you think, my goodness, around this country and around the world right now, so many people are dying because of this virus that has just constrained us for the better part of a year. We are really at 11 months since everything in the world basically shut down, especially in this country. So how we deal with that and how we deal with the loss of different folks from different types of things that are going around in this world and you know, some things are just really not uh, able to be explained all that well. And I think this is one of them, at least the early indications are for Vincent Jackson. And so, like you said, Mike, I mean, we just extend our condolences to all of those who loved him. And I guess all we can do is, is what we've tried to do for the last 11 months. Show up every day, make the most out of every day, pay attention to your loved ones and your friends and, and, and anyone around you in your, in your environment that, that may be struggling in some way and help them out any way you can and just keep going one day, one day, string them together. Don't get caught up in the big picture and just exist, but try to, try to persevere and just hope that at some point something like whatever was normal before March of 2020 will, will settle in again at some point down the road. All right, let's uh let's do what we do here. We provide the distraction, the diversion, the 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 things that that take your mind off of the day in and day out crap that we've experienced. So let's talk about some football and one guy who's been around the NFL for a long time now. 2007 was his rookie season. Adrian Peterson turns 36 next month. He continues to talk about two objectives. One is either easier than the other. One is winning a Super Bowl. The other one is much harder. That's catching Emmett Smith and taking the all-time rushing record. Here's the latest from Adrian Peterson on his lingering desire to pass Emmett Smith. It's something that I'm mindful of. Like, okay, it's only I know it's about three thirty-eight hundred, four thousand, something like that. So I know that much. Um, but 
I'm just going to keep playing. You know, I'm going to keep playing, trying to chase the championship. And God's willing, within that process of doing that, I'm able to catch Emmett and pass him. I want to set the bar at a different level. You know, I want to literally be a 40-year-old back out there rushing for 1,500 yards, you know, and amazing people still. I got to admire the attitude, and it's kind of what we're talking about. We continue to go about our lives with our goals, with our dreams, day in and day out. It doesn't really matter if you get there or not. It's just having them is what gets you through times like this. Is he going to get 3,535 yards? I don't think so. He'd have to play five more years. He wants to play into the age of 40. That's five more seasons. He needs to average 707 yards per season. He had 600 and some change, not much change for the Lions in 2020. He's got a long way to go. He's got several guys he's got to jump. I I say, you know, the, the will is there. The determination is there. The problem is the employment needs to be there. You need to have a team. You need to be on the field. You need to be getting the ball. I, I think if, if he would get, you know, 250 carries a year or 200 a year, he's going to get there. But I don't know that he's going to continue to find employment. I don't know that he's going to continue to find opportunities. Almost like Frank Gore. I think Frank Gore would catch Emmett Smith if teams would continue to give him work miles. It's just it's hard with with young guys full tread on the tires coming out every year of college. It's harder and harder for the older older running backs to find jobs. Yeah, why would anybody necessarily sign Adrian Peterson in free agency in March, in April, in May, when at really at most I think his best role for somebody that uh, a team would probably be as somebody who can come in at, at a contender and maybe help them be a third down back or somebody who can get the ball in the end zone when they're down there in the red zone. I just I don't see him as a pure starting running back anymore, and I think that's what he would need to be in order to get that 700 yards per season and sort of be this Tom Brady of running backs that he apparently wants to be, where he's playing at 40 and he's getting all these carries and then he's getting into the end zone. I mean, Mike, who can you actually think of that would want to sign him as a free agent? The Chiefs were interested in him when he was released by Washington, but they wanted to wait until after their week one game against the Texans because there's a quirk in the rules that if you sign a vested veteran after week one and it doesn't work out, you don't owe him his full season salary as a practical matter under the collective bargaining agreement. The Lions were willing to jump pre-week one, which is why he went with Detroit. In hindsight, does he wish he'd gone to Kansas City. They went with Le'Veon Bell after Bell was cut by the Jets. Bell didn't work out. Peterson, I think, at least would have contributed to the cause. I could see the Chiefs being at least interested in Peterson for 2021. There isn't a team out there, though, that you look at, Miles, and say Adrian Peterson would be the bell cow. He's the answer. He's the guy. He's going to be a role player, and the problem is if you're a role player, you're not going to play the kind of role you need to play to get 707 rushing yards in a given season and average that amount for the next five. I Look, I don't want to do the typical knee jerk. This guy's delusional. You have to be delusional to make it in the NFL for as long as he has. I like the fact that the guy's closing in on 36 and he's still holding on to a dream and he's still pursuing the dream and he's still showing up every day and he's putting in the work necessary to get there. And maybe he will, but if he doesn't, there's no shame in that. He's still a Hall of Fame running back. And I think the fact that he's holding out that hope to win a Super Bowl, 
to pass Emmett Smith. That's the thing that keeps him going. Otherwise, maybe he would just call it quits and be done. Yeah, I, I don't think he is as delusional as many people in his situation might be. Because when you look at it, he's still pretty productive. I, I don't know if you could say, all right, you look, you look at him and you look at Frank Gore. Which one would you rather have? I mean, I'd probably rather have Adrian Peterson if, if it comes down to it. Because if you're talking about an older running back, at least he still shows a little bit more explosion where if you're looking at Frank Gore, and don't get me wrong, I have a ton of respect for Frank Gore and how long he's played in this league, but that's more two yards in a cloud of dust. At least Adrian Peterson can break off a seven-yard run, a 10-yard run. If he gets the right amount of space, maybe he gets a 35-yard touchdown. I just don't think you can see that from Frank Gore. But I think based on the way Adrian Peterson works and the way that we know how much he's taking care of his body to this point in his career, I don't think it's too delusional for him to think that, yes, he could eclipse that mark if he got the opportunity. But Mike, like you said, it's about the opportunity. And frankly, if you're a team, I want the guys who have less tread on those tires. Yeah, absolutely right. Especially because if they're farther down on the depth chart, they're contributing on special teams. They are cheaper. You don't have to worry about the injury factor as much. And you also don't have to worry about this notion that you're going to have a guy on the sideline who's thinking, why am I not in the game? Why am I not getting the ball? I think back to the first game of the 2016 season when he was it oh, 2017. I'm off by a year. 2016 was his last year with the Vikings. He was out most of the season with a knee injury. 2017, Saints and Vikings. He was stewing on the sideline because he wasn't getting the kind of opportunities he thought he would get, and he ended up being traded by the Saints during that season. So it's a tough balance. It's a tough call. And I think Tampa Bay would be a perfect spot for him if they had a need because, you know, he, he'd fall under the Tom Brady spell. Maybe he'd start doing some of the Tom Brady methods of pliability and avocado ice cream and find a way to extend his career to the point where he'd like to make it to 40. Maybe have a 45-year-old quarterback and a 38, 39-year-old running back in Tampa Bay. That, that would require Leonard Fournette moving on, and I think Fournette at this point clearly a better option than Adrian Peterson. But, but again, I, I like the fact that the guy still wants to play, and I agree with you. I'd rather have him than Frank Gore, even though I do believe Frank Gore is a first ballot Hall of Famer for sure, the, the, the durability and production that we've seen over the years. But, uh, you know, we talked to Evan Smith a couple of weeks ago in advance of the Super Bowl, and Adrian Peterson, not one of the names that's on Emmett Smith's radar screen when it comes to people who could catch his record. Here's a little bit of what we talked to Emmett about when we talked to him in the few days before the Super Bowl. Is there anybody out there that you've kind of flagged as this could be the guy who eventually breaks my record? It's too early. It is too early in the game right now. Frank Gore is the guy that's still out there running. And, um, I mean, he's inching closer and closer. But – you know, it's just too early to tell in terms of all of the young backs that are out there. Derrick Henry just came, went over 2,000 yards this year. Uh, and so he's quickly moving up the ladder himself. Uh, but it's just too early to tell right now. Um, I would start looking at it uh, when players starting to get into 13,000 yards. Once you get to that 13,000-yard mark, we'll see where you are and how your body's feeling, how you're holding up, and, and – and whether or not the team continue to believe in you and give you an opportunity to go and do something pretty special. Adrian Peterson falls into that category, but was not mentioned by Emmett Smith. I think that Emmett probably feels the same way we do, that 
the opportunities just aren't going to be there, that the, the spirit may be willing, the flesh may be strong enough, but if you don't find a team that's going to give you the chances, you're never going to rack up the yardage necessary to bridge that 3,535-yard gap, Miles. Well, it just seemed like he really just wanted to answer your question with no and move on, but then he kind of found a way to be a little bit more polite about it. Like, oh, you know, once you get to 13,000 yards, yeah, maybe then we can start talking about it. And maybe he just forgot that Adrian Peterson has already gotten past that and that, you know, he's shown that, yeah, I still want to be able to do this. I still want to be out there. I'm still taking care of myself. But yeah, I mean, I think Emmett Smith is going to stay the Russian king for a long time. I just don't know that anybody else is just going to get those opportunities at this point. And Emmett has told us, and this was from last year prior to the Super Bowl, that he wants to be alive when it happens. He wants to participate in the moment because Walter Payton was gone when Emmett Smith broke the record. And Emmett Smith knows how much it would have meant to him to be able to celebrate that occasion with the guy who had the record before Emmett Smith. But the way the game has gone, you've got to play a long time. You've got you, you've got to hope that your team chooses to run the football enough opportunities for you to gain the yardage, and you got to be good enough, and you got to stay healthy, and you got to check a lot of boxes that makes it very difficult to check to get to the point where you can pass Emmett Smith. Adrian Peterson's quarterback in 2020 for most of the season was Matthew Stafford. I feel like Stafford has said more in the last two weeks than he had in his t- entire career combined. It seems like every day we got another Matthew Stafford story. Matthew said this. Matthew said that. Matthew said this. Now he says that he had a good relationship with former Lions coach Matt Patricia. He and I had a good relationship. No matter what anybody wants to say, I could go into his office and talk to him. That's a pretty low bar. He could get me on the phone whenever he needed to. I think we both grew in that relationship. I have a lot of respect for him and who he is as a football coach and an unbelievable mind. That's a far cry, Miles, from what Stafford had to say, and I'm pulling up the quote here, after they lost on Thanksgiving to the Texans, that was the final nail for for Patricia Stafford was asked if Patricia should remain the coach, and Stafford said, it's not my decision. That's for somebody else. If you want to ask me about the game, you ask me about the game. That was the kind of yikes moment for me that, that yeah, Stafford, Stafford doesn't care. Stafford doesn't care if they change coaches, and Stafford's not going to burn any of his equity in Detroit speaking out for Matt Patricia. Yeah, I mean, at that point, too, you had to probably figure from a Matt Stafford standpoint, I just, I'm pretty much done with this. And we know that because right after the season, he goes to the ownership and team president and says, hey, guys, can you trade me, please? And it turns out they say yes. And now he's going to Los Angeles and he's going to be an L.A. Ram once that thing becomes official at the start of the new league year. But I think part of the issue here that he says with Matt Patricia, or the fact that there is no issue, I guess I should say, is that he's just trying to point to, okay, yeah, I could do all these things. And, you know, we had a decent relationship and we could get on the phone and we can talk and we could talk things out. But he's not really saying anything about all the decisions that were made. And really, when you look at it, Matt Patricia is the reason why Matt Stafford is no longer going to be a Detroit Lion. He basically drove him out of Detroit 
because all he did when they came in there was lose. They took what Jim Caldwell had, you know, a nine and seven football team. And yes, you could say whatever you want about Jim Caldwell and what he did there, but they at least were a franchise that was middling to winning, right? Now they're just the losing franchise that they've been. And so I totally understand why Matthew Stafford doesn't want to necessarily be a part of that. But I also understand from the standpoint of, I don't necessarily want to go out here and burn a lot of bridges, why he would say, ah, you know, Matt Patricia's not a, he's not a bad coach. We had a good relationship, but what does that really, really mean when you just kind of look at the words? It's kind of empty. Patricia's flaw was he showed up and he tried to immediately instill the Patriot way into the Lions. He, he, you know, he, he called guys out. He treated players the way that Bill Belichick treated players and it, it just didn't work. It didn't work. He lost the players quickly. Matthew Stafford, I would guess, never stood up in the locker room and said, give this guy a chance. Let's listen to him. Let's follow his ways. He's bringing in a bunch of Super Bowl championships. It just didn't work. And and that's the problem with so many of the Bill Belichick disciples, even the ones who say, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to be my own person. What they don't realize, Miles, is after 15 years with Belichick, they have become him without realizing it. They think that that's the normal way to lead a team. Showing up and on the first day when you meet with the team, you you single out one of the stars and you and you piss him off. Darius Slay, let's make him the, the, the scapegoat. Let's make him the target. Let's make him the guy that I show to all the other players. There are no sacred cows here because I'm going straight after him doesn't work didn't work and 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 I look at this quote from Stafford he could get me on the phone whenever he needed to well you know what the Texans can't do that with Deshaun Watson so I guess that makes it a good relationship it certainly makes it better than what the Texans have right now yeah I guess you're right but the thing about Matt Patricia too and this always just struck me I guess as a reporter when he goes into that press conference and then he he says to the reporter hey man you know why are you slouching you know, get yourself right a little bit. You know, have a little pride in what you're doing. This dude coaches with a pencil behind his ear. And you're talking about have a little pride in what you're doing and don't look like a slouch? Come on, man. You got to be better than that. Well, and, and beyond the pencil, and I think going into his third season, he finally realized the connection between or the disconnect between perception and reality. He'd let that beard just get so crazy, and it, it, he looked like a far different guy than who he was when you dealt with him one-on-one. I just think that that 15 years with Bill Belichick will screw up anyone, and it, it warps the reality of what should be acceptable and tolerated in a head coach and what works, and again— Bill Belichick can be whoever he wants to be with all those rings. That, that, that's the challenge. When you're one of his guys and you go somewhere else, if you don't win right away, you're not going to last because those methods are going to piss off everyone and they're going to start clamoring for you to be gone. Changes in Chicago as well. New defensive coordinator Sean Desai, he says that the defense just needs a tune-up. Here is some of his introduction to the Chicago media. I'm not a big car guy, right? So uh, my analogies may not be great, but this is like a tune-up. You know, we're, we're going to refine some things and, and we're going to uh, uh, make sure our players are playing to their strengths uh, on a consistent basis. Uh, and they're going to buy into the system and the whys and the hows and why we're doing certain things. Uh, but we've got a good defense. You know, we've got really good players here and we've got a really good defense. And, and I'm with you all in terms of the stats. Somebody asked earlier, there was some regression and 
uh, we're going to overcome that, but but we're going to do it in a positive way, and we're going to do it where the players uh, are going to be able to shine through that defense. So, uh, you know, I think I think we'll build some depth, and we'll we'll continue with our tough physical mindset of play, and do that over a sixteen to twenty week season. A little bit of a Vic Fangio mindset returning to the defense. Chuck Pagano retired after last season, and look, it offense and defense go together. The worse your offense is, the more pressure it puts on your defense. It's hard for your defense to be successful in those situations. That's one thing we lose sight of when we get caught up in looking at the performance of one side of the ball. The performance of the other side of the ball is a huge, huge factor. The better that offense is, the better the defense is going to be, Miles. It's that simple. Oh, I think so, too. And that's why I think the more important thing for Chicago right now is they've got to figure out whatever their quarterback situation is going to be. Are they going to trade for Carson Wentz? Are they going to re-sign Mitchell Trubisky? Are they going to roll with Nick Foles? And I don't know why they would necessarily want to do that. If they can figure that out, then they can then take that step and then say, all right, here's what we want to see from this defense. And I think the biggest thing is what's on this graphic right now. You see takeaways at the bottom right there. They had... 36 takeaways in 2018 that led the league, and they only had 18 in 2020. So I think when you're looking at that, that really makes a big difference in what this defense was and what this defense is right now. And Vic Fangio's scheme puts a ton of emphasis on getting those takeaways. If they can start to do that again, Mike, then I think that they're going to be in much better shape. And, and also, back to the offense. If the offense is scoring points and putting more pressure on the opposing offense and maybe they take chances they wouldn't otherwise take, they're down by seven points, they're down by 10, they're down by 14, we got to make something happen. That's how the floodgates open for takeaways, and that's how we get to the point when we reach the end of the season we look back at the numbers, we say, hey, they were, they were uh, significantly up in takeaways. Yeah, because their offense is better than it's been, and that's what they need to do. And the question is, will they be able to do it? Here's what we need to do. We're going to take a break. When we return, there's been some reporting in recent days about the next wave of TV deals for the NFL. Most will be the same. Some may be different. What does it all mean? We'll discuss that next on PFTP. Interesting business angle for the NFL that needs to be addressed. It's popped up from time to time in recent weeks, and it's going to get resolved sooner than later for a couple of reasons. First of all, most of the TV deals for the NFL run through 2022. One of them, one of the biggest ones, Monday Night Football, runs through 2021. Peter King had some reporting in Football Morning in America about the reality that the NFL is closing in on a new round of deals that would go for 10 years years. Jabari Young of CNBC had some information last week as well, suggesting that the NFL wants to finalize the framework of these deals before setting the next salary cap, which tells me, Miles, this $100 billion in total value over the next 10 years quite possibly will get shuffled around a little bit to help boost the cap in a year that it otherwise would be depressed due to the pandemic from 198.2 down to 180. Maybe some of this new money, this new TV money, will slide into 2021 and up goes the cap, and it makes it easier for some of these teams that are in real cap trouble to operate this year. Yeah, and not only will it help those teams, I mean, it helps these players, man, because I think we're going to see a lot of veteran guys 
don't have that much guaranteed money left on their contracts start to get cut. And when you talk about that, that is kind of this middle class right there of football veterans who are, you know, probably into their second contracts, maybe moving into their 30s, people who can still be productive, but they're going to get a little more expensive because they're going to command more salary because they have more experience. So I think the sooner they can get this done, the better. And if that does affect the cap and they're able to push that thing up a little bit further, it's only going to benefit everybody, Mike. And I think that's probably why they want to get it done so quickly. Prime example, J.J. Watt falls right into that category. Guy on the wrong side of 30, not a superstar anymore. How can any team know what it can offer him without knowing what the cap is going to be? That extra million or two you give to J.J. Watt is the thing that may cause you to cut some other players, one or more of them, that would otherwise be an important part of the broader cause in 2021. Or the extra money you give to Watt, that's less money you'd have to maybe go grab a free agent who gets cut by another team, a guy who's available or a guy who didn't get the offer that he wanted and he's willing to do a one-year deal to join your team. So everyone needs to know what the cap is going to be. Clark Hunt, the chairman of the league's finance committee, said before the Super Bowl that they may not know what the cap is until just hours before the start of the new league year on March 17. So these TV deals could go a long way toward pumping them up or at least keeping the salary cap from falling quite as far as many think. The prevailing thought continues to be neighborhood of $180 million. One of the factors that's still unknown, what's the expected attendance for 2021? That could help drive up the number a little bit as well. It's all part of a negotiation between the league and the union. But before the league and the union can negotiate on what the cap will be, the league's got to have an agreement. The team's got to have an agreement. And, Miles, for strategic reasons, some of these teams are sitting on a mountain of cap space. Their position may be, hey, sucks to be you. Let's go. You got to cut some guys. Sorry, you should have kept more cap space back in the event of some unexpected development like this one. Yeah, if you're the Browns and you've got a bunch of cap space and you're seeing J.J. Watt out there and you're like, hey, man, it doesn't necessarily matter what the cap is going to be. We know we want you and we can probably pay you a little bit more than some of these other teams that are very close to either being Super Bowl contenders or are already Super Bowl contenders if you want to ring chase. Look, we're Cleveland and yeah, we know that we haven't been very good for very long and we've been really bad for a really long time, but you can really be part of the piece that helps take us over the top. And if you're that and you can say that to J.J. Watt and you can present him with a good contract, with a good salary before you know what the cap is, then you're in a better situation than a lot of other teams are right now. And Mike, I think that could really be one of the determining factors in where J.J. Watt goes. So here's where the TV deals are likely to stand. And let me just preface these comments by saying I have no inside information. NBC only wakes me up for the unimportant meetings. The reporting that others have pushed forward suggests that CBS and Fox will keep the Sunday afternoon package as they have for years now. NBC likely to keep, expected to keep, will keep Sunday night football, a package that NBC has had since 2006. Thursday Night Football is one of the wild cards. None of the three-letter networks want it, apparently. Amazon may get it. The problem is it's not going to have that three-letter broadcast platform where you get 20 million or more people tuning in. People are going to have to stream it. Maybe it'll be on NFL Network. But that becomes something that has less 
value as it relates to the infomercial aspect. All the people who tune in to watch this game, you're not going to have that on Thursday night. And, Miles, I think that makes it more important. If Thursday night is a non-three-letter network night, Monday night needs to be a three-letter network night. It needs to be ESPN, ABC, simulcast. That's the last domino that apparently needs to fall, with the other wrinkle being Sunday Ticket. There's been talk of ESPN Plus inheriting the streaming aspect from DirecTV. I think it would be wise to keep with DirecTV the satellite element because there are still plenty of people who don't have the kind of internet service needed to stream games but still have out in the middle of nowhere that satellite dish that allows them to pull all the games off of the satellite. So that feels like where it's heading, but until it gets there, we don't know for sure, but multiple reports are kind of lining it up that way. I think the Thursday night part of this is super interesting because basically when Thursday night football started, it used to be this thing where it's like, oh boy, what AFC South uh, matchup are we watching here? You know, the Tennessee Titans and the Jacksonville Jaguars are playing on Thursday night. And it seems like this is always what happens. And who is Marcus Mariota going to throw a touchdown pass to? It's different now because it's been on NBC, on CBS, on Fox. So you needed better matchups. And Fox has really gotten that in the last few years. But if this thing goes to Amazon, I think it's going to start rolling that back where the premium matchups really won't necessarily be on Thursday night anymore because you're just frankly not going to have the same amount of eyeballs on that thing as you did when it was on a three-letter network. So that's one really fascinating part of it to me. And I think what you're saying about the Monday night football makes that even more true. You want that on all these three-letter networks. You want that thing simulcast on ABC. And hey, you're going to get more viewers on it just because it's broadcast television as opposed to cable television. But it also means, I think, that Monday night football can get these more premium matchups that you would sometimes see on Thursday night because it's going to be a marquee game more of the marquee game again than I think it's kind of been over the course of the last few years. And Mike, the other interesting thing that's been reported about that was the fact that they could get some flex games in the late season from Monday night football. I think that would kind of be a game changer. And and I think that better than flexing Sunday to Monday and Monday to Sunday, which creates logistical problems for everyone involved, fans, media, teams, everyone, the idea of a certain number of double headers. Six o'clock, nine o'clock, right? Where you you pick the two games for that night and you decide a week beforehand which is the prime matchup on ABC and which is the secondary matchup on ESPN. And the 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 notion of expanding the windows, I think that's something to keep an eye on as we go forward as gambling develops as more states come online with it as we get to the point where real-time betting throughout the course of a game is is easier to accomplish technologically where what you watch on tv is instantaneously arriving in your house on your phone on your tablet from the game site the latency gets ironed out of the process that's when people can make bets play after play drive after drive and the more you put games in one, one game per window, 
the more people congregate, the more opportunities there are, because otherwise you got nine games going on at 1 o'clock Eastern on a Sunday. Those are wasted opportunities because somebody yeah, – it's not like people are going to be making bets on multiple games, this play, that play, this play, that play. There's not enough time to do it. So I think a move toward more windows, two on Monday night, maybe one on Tuesday night, maybe squeeze another window into Sunday. Those are all things that I think we need to keep an eye on and the possibility of – of a doubleheader element on Monday night. We saw it this year. It was a pandemic reality, and I think it worked. And And I won't be surprised if that's how they deal with the effort to pump up the Monday schedule. A couple of games late in the year, and then we'll decide which one is worthy of the bigger platform. Yeah, I think the Monday night doubleheader idea is great because I think, look, it, I think it was pretty successful just from even my standpoint. I'm sitting here and I'm watching multiple games on Monday night and it's like, wow, you get to the end of the first one. It's like, man, there's another one that's about to kick off. This is awesome. So, look, you already have these windows that are built in on Sunday. I think fewer games on Sunday, where then you say, all right, you have fewer games in the one o'clock window, you have more in the four o'clock, you have one at night. I think that that has worked pretty well. But when you have these international games sometimes, and if, you know, we can have international games again in 2021, who knows what that's going to be um, once we get to September, but you can have that early, early window where, again, the Jaguars seem to always be playing in that. And then you could have two double, two uh, games on Monday where then you're saying, all right, look, it's a double header and you can then figure out which, which matchup is going to be the prime matchup and which one is going to be the B team matchup. I think the, the schedule flexibility that would give and the more opportunities, like you said, for sports betting that that would present would be something that's really, really beneficial to the league as a whole, Mike. Legalized gambling is going to lead to a push for more things on which to bet. More windows, more games, and eventually, mark it down, more teams. There's enough Ooh. quarterbacks now to have more teams i feel like that's just a matter of time all right let's take a break when we return a little game of what happens first we'll do that next on pftpm after that we'll bust open the mailbag we'll be right back monday edition of pftpm let's get right into it what happens first, Miles? First category. Who gets traded first? Carson Wentz, Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson. Who goes first? I feel like you're you're making me play a game of Mary, you know, murder or whatever the third thing is there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, whatever the third thing is. Yeah, whatever the third thing is. It should be Carson Wentz, though, that gets traded first, right? Because Carson Wentz, I think, is the only one of these guys that's really immediately about to get traded. So I think when you look at it, you know, we obviously know the rumors that he was supposedly supposed to be traded last week after the Super Bowl. I remember that was the reporting. And then obviously that did not happen. And it's apparently because the Eagles haven't been offered enough um, in terms of a trade offer quite yet. So I would say that uh, Wentz probably gets traded first. Then Deshaun Watson, and I don't see Russell Wilson getting traded. I don't see why they would trade him because I don't think the, the relationship between the Seahawks and Russell Wilson is irreparable like I think it is with Deshaun Watson, Mike. 
Somebody in the industry who likes to stir a little crap from time to time texted me a screenshot of ESPN this morning, and it said at the bottom, Eagles expected to trade Carson Wentz in the coming days. Chris Mortensen and Adam Schefter report, and the question posed to me was, what's the record for most consecutive days that a trade is expected in the coming days? But it's it's been expected in the coming days for the past 10 to 15 days. I, look, I think I think the reality is, and I agree with you, I think Wentz is the first one to go. And March 19 is the practical deadline. Unless the Eagles want to pay Wentz a $10 million roster bonus and then say to the Colts or whoever the suitor is, we want more. We want $10 million in draft pick value for the money we've paid this guy because now you only have to pay him $30 million over the next two years, not $40 million. I, I, I doubt that the Eagles are going to do that. I don't think Jeffrey Lurie wants to cut a check to Carson Wentz for $10 million. I think it gets done by the 19th. And I think right now they're just waiting for someone to come out of the weeds. It's a deadline-driven business. There's no reason to come out of the weeds now. There's no sense that a deal is, is happening momentarily with the Colts. I feel like the Colts are the only real destination. Two second-round picks is what Ron Jaworski said the Colts have offered. The, I don't know why Wentz would want to go to the Bears. I don't know why the Bears would want Wentz. Peter King and I argued about that this morning. If I'm Wentz, I want nothing to do with Chicago because that fan base is just a half of a click below Philly from the standpoint of how upset they're going to be if Wentz stinks. At least in Indianapolis, he'd be patient. Or it wouldn't be obvious that he stinks because the offense is already pretty good. The defense is already pretty good. It's a better team. It's a better situation to walk into. I think he wants to go to Indy. I think the Colts want him, but the Colts know they can wait. But I think it comes to a head before either of the other two situations are ready for a deal to be reached between new team and current team. Yeah, and I think the fact that Wentz should want to go to Indianapolis is really the only destination, at least off the top of my head, that would seem to make sense for him. I mean, he gets to go with coaches who he's very familiar with. Frank Reich is there. Press Taylor is now there. Uh, so that from that standpoint, it's like, all right, these are guys that I know and guys that I trust and guys who I think can really get the best out of me. And that's got to be really important to him. I think, you know, anybody's got pride. As a QB, you've got to have some pride in order to get out there and compete and try to compete at a high level. And if Carson Wentz has that, then he's going to want to go to a situation where he's going to be set up the best in order to succeed. And frankly, based on the way he played in 2020, where he took 50 sacks and led the league, even though he didn't play a 16-game a season, I don't know why anybody else would really want him. I don't know why anybody else would say, yeah, I'll give you more than two first-round picks for this guy. He's not shown that he can play at a level recently enough that's going to tell you, look, yeah, I have a lot of confidence that he can get back to his 2017 level. I, I just I don't know why you would do that. Acquiring him on the hope that 2020 was an aberration is not the best way to go about filling your quarterback position. Next topic, Jets trade Sam Darnold or the NFL draft. What happens first? That's an interesting one because I, it just makes me think about the Arizona Cardinals a couple years ago and what they ended up doing with Josh Rosen, which was keep him until they picked Kyler Murray at one. And then they still got a second round pick for him. And I mean, now that we've seen Josh Rosen's career unfold over the last couple of years, it kind of seems like the Arizona Cardinals got back the best value they could ever possibly get back for Josh Rosen. 
I think that Sam Darnold could maybe command a first round pick. I don't know that I would trade a first round pick for him, but if I'm, you know, 20 or lower and I might need a QB, then that's something that I would consider doing. But I don't know that that means that Darnold's going to get drafted or excuse me, get traded before the draft, because I don't know when his value is exactly going to be highest. I mean, I guess it is right now before that, uh, before the draft happens, if the Jets do take a QB, but if they don't, then he's still going to have some value, Mike. But, you know, you've identified a, a third category, the sweet spot between the start of the draft and the start of round two on the second day of the draft. That's that opportunity to work out a deal for Darnold if the Jets take a quarterback with the second overall pick. And if there's a team out there that was evaluating the possibility of taking a quarterback, didn't, but still has a need at the position and wants to bring in Sam Darnold. That, that one intrigues me. The other thing, too, is you just let the dust settle on the draft. And then after the draft, if a team isn't happy with its quarterback position, or maybe a team that was kind of bluffing its way through the draft. You know, I look at the 49ers. I think they'd, they'd surely like to trade Jimmy Garoppolo if they're going to move on, not cut him. But if you can't find a trade partner for Jimmy Garoppolo, cutting him becomes a viable option. You're looking at $25 million or thereabouts that you're going to pay a guy that can't stay healthy. Maybe after the draft, if you don't draft a quarterback, you trade for Sam Darnold and you say see you later to Jimmy Garoppolo in one fell swoop. So there's a lot of different ways that that one could go, and that one intrigues me because I'm not going to commit to one or the other, and maybe you're right. Maybe it happens during. All right, last one real quick. What happens first? J.J. Watts signs with the team or free agency officially begins? I wish that this were the the cap officially gets set because I think that is when we're going to see more movement on J.J. Watt. When we know what the cap is going to be, if it actually is going to be at $180 million, if it's going to be a little bit higher than that or maybe a little bit below that, then I think we'll start to see more movement on J.J. Watt because at that point, teams are going to know what they can actually offer him, Mike. And I think before they know what they can offer him, it's going to be really hard to sign a veteran guy like that. Yeah, I agree with you. Unless he decides to go to one of the teams that has the cap space that they can go ahead and jump. I think he's more motivated by playing where he wants to play than grabbing as much money as he can at this point. But we'll see how that plays out. Let's take a break. We're going to bust open the PFT PM mailbag when we wrap up this Monday edition of the program. We'll be back with more right after this. All right, rapid-fire mailbag time, Miles. We've got several questions here. Let's get through as many as we can. We start with a good friend, A Red Zone Alk, who's been asking questions for a very long time, 10 years now, I think. Is the dysfunction in Houston a convenient distraction for the rest of the NFL's owners? Your thoughts? A convenient distraction from what, right? Like, does that mean that the, they're distracting from the fact that, I don't know, that they haven't hired that many black coaches in the NFL right now, that uh, Tom Brady's won another Super Bowl or that he threw a trophy in a boat parade? I don't know. I think it, it's interesting. <laughs> like, just, I, I don't know what we're really distracting from. I don't know. The fact that Tom Brady won a Super Bowl, what, what is he a well, convenient distraction from? They're, they're, the rest of the owner's dysfunction? No other team is as dysfunctional is this one that's the thing they have cornered the market on it and I think the Texans were probably very happy about the misadventures of the Jaguars on Thursday and Friday and Saturday morning of last week because that at least shifted the spotlight elsewhere in the division for a little while but 
Miles, I, I know this for a fact. The, the owners who know how to run a football team, they love having teams like the Texans around. They, because they all make the same money. It's not like the Texans are so dysfunctional it's going to infringe on the ability of the NFL to collectively make its billions. But you know when there's a team that is in that kind of a spiral out of control, if they're on your schedule, check that one off. You don't have to worry about competing with them for playoff spots, division titles. You know, I, I know a head coach who believes that at any given time, there are only 10 teams in the NFL that actually have a realistic shot of winning the Super Bowl, and the other 22 are just there. And I don't know where that number is, where the dividing line is, but wherever it is, the Texans are on the wrong side of it. That's safe to say. And they've got company, <laughs> yeah. but they're clearly on the other side of it. Well, the Texans are basically the new Browns, right? Like The Browns were that team for basically two decades since they came back from 1999, with the exception, I guess, 2002, when they made the playoffs in 07, when they went 10 and 6 and missed it up until this last year. They were that team where you're like, all right, I can check off this win and that's about it. So I guess, yes, the Texans are probably a convenient distraction from that standpoint. At 10 Newkirk, where is the best spot for Alex Smith? That's an interesting question because I don't I don't think Alex Smith is a starter anymore on a team that really wants to win a Super Bowl, right? If you're talking about there are 10 teams that can really win it and 22 are just there, then I think if Alex Smith is your quarterback, then you're probably one of the 22 teams that is just there. And I don't <laughs> I don't mean that in a bad way toward Alex Smith. Look, he is one of the best stories in the NFL last year, obviously. I mean, the fact that he was able to play and start multiple games after what happened to his leg is remarkable. But probably right where he is in Washington is his best fit, if not maybe the Chiefs backup. I, I don't know, like I said, if he can go somewhere and really compete, Mike. You know, Alex Smith isn't quite young enough to be my son. More and more players in the NFL are young enough to be my son. More and more of them are younger than my son. But every time I watch Alex Smith play, I feel the way that I did when my son was playing high school football, where I'm constantly worried that something's going to happen to him after the horrific leg injury that we saw a couple of years ago. So for me, I just like to see him retire because it adds extra stress to the viewing experience because I worry about Alex Smith. And maybe finding a place where he can be the backup, where he can help groom a young quarterback, where he knows the offense and can just provide leadership and and set a good example. Maybe that's his best play. And you can still make 4 or $5 million a year in that kind of a gig, which is pretty good work if you can get it. All right, at Steven Ringer, what does Cleveland do now with OBJ? Played a ton better without him last year. Is he going to come back the same? Plenty of talent in the receiving core, et cetera, et cetera. Here's the problem. His salary becomes fully guaranteed for 2021 on the third day of the league year. They can't cut him before then because of the ACL. They, they are strapped with his pay for 2021. Maybe they could find somebody to trade for him. But first question with OBJ, is he healthy? Exactly. So if he is healthy and then he can go out there and actually learn the offense, because I think that was maybe the biggest difference there with the Cleveland Browns. And guys have talked about it from that team. Look, 
when Baker Mayfield really started to take off, yes, uh, Odell Beckham Jr. had suffered the injury, but you also got to think about the fact that they had a virtual offseason with a first-year head coach who had never called plays for Baker Mayfield before. So you have to get to know your guys, and they didn't have the benefit of the offseason program, of mandatory mini camps, of most of what you would get from a normal training camp in order to do that. So I really think you got to roll the dice with OBJ, especially because of the injury, because of the salary situation that comes with that. I would keep him for 2021 and see if you could actually make that partnership work, Mike, because he's an elite receiver when he is right. And the Browns need that. The biggest problem that I continue to see with OBJ and the Browns, that stress that he brings to the offense with the presumption that the ball must fly his way. And if it doesn't, the team can't win. And it only has a chance to win if you throw the ball his way. I think it messed with Baker Mayfield in 2020. 19, I think that it was messing with the offense to a certain extent in 2020. They did get better after Odell Beckham Jr. wasn't available, and I know that multiple players weren't happy with that topic, but I think it's true. When Baker Mayfield can just drop back, go through his reads, and throw the ball to the open guy without worrying about the number of times that Odell Beckham Jr. gets the ball, the offense is better. If they can get to a point where that's no longer a topic— then Odell Beckham Jr. makes the Browns even better and puts them in position where they can get even farther in the divisional round of the playoffs. At Jimmy C., with Chris Hogan going to play professional lacrosse, are there any other players you could see crossing over to another sport at the end of their careers, Miles? That's a tough one because, you know, you always talk about guys who play basketball, but if you're at the end of your career and you're Jimmy Graham, you're not going to go play basketball anymore. Your body is too broken up. So I guess the guys that come to mind for me are baseball guys, Russell Wilson, Kyler Murray, especially Kyler Murray, because he was a top pick in baseball. So I think presumably he could go in there and, you know, play a little a ball, play double a ball, whatever it, it takes. And then maybe see that, yeah, he can still hit a little bit and go play baseball. But I, I don't know if you can really do any other sport. Unless I just maybe look Ryan Fitzpatrick in dressage because he went to Harvard. So he's that's something <laughs> fancy. For you know, typically I would look at golf and pro wrestling as the primary post-career professional sports alternatives for NFL players because you're usually in your 30s. You're too old to jump into something else. I've always been fascinated though, with Kyler Murray. If he decides I've had enough of this crap. I can go play baseball and make as much money or more money and not have to deal with this constant adversity that football brings. I, I don't think he gets there, but I always wonder if, if the Cardinals just can't get out of their own way, would he ever consider that? Last one real quick. I don't know how big of an office fan you are, but we're on Peacock. C.A. Hawkins, 217. Who's the worst character from the office series and why is it Robert California? Setting aside Robert California, Miles, do you have an office character you hate? Uh, no, I think Robert California is the worst uh, character in The Office, Like, and it's not really that close, and that's the worst season of The Office, unfortunately. I was never a big fan of Nellie. I didn't understand Nellie's vibe. I didn't understand her management style. That's it for today. See you tomorrow.